Well, good morning. My name is John Fox. I'm the discipleship pastor here, and um, I'm going to be preaching for you this morning. Surprise. Um, but uh, let me just kind of inform you about what we're doing before we get there. So last week, uh, Pastor Casey began a new series for us, an Advent series, like Gallon said, that uh, it's the time of year that we celebrate the coming of Christ and then also look forward to his return and his coming. And uh, that sermon that Pastor Casey started last week was the first in the series, God With Us. And he spent the time really looking at at Jesus' humanity. What does it mean that God came to be with us? And last week, largely, it was focused on Jesus' humanity. This week, um, the, the focus moves now from humanity to his divinity, that as we see Jesus in the, in the Bible, as he's revealed to us, not only is he fully human to fully recognize with us, but also fully divine. And, and that's what we're going to focus on this week. And there's really... Um, one, one main point that I'd like to, to propose to you and then lead us in this morning for that endeavor, and it's this, that representing God correctly will satisfy your deepest desires. Representing God correctly will satisfy your deepest desires. And we could take some time and talk about why that's the case, but that's not really what I want to do this morning. Instead, what we are going to do is look at the Bible and what the Bible has to say about how to be that. If, if representing God is the most satisfying thing for us, then how? How do we get there? How do we do that? And we can look at it at least three different ways that the Bible will show us. First, by recognizing our problem. Second, by realizing our image. And third, by receiving our representative. So by recognizing our purpose, by realizing our image, and by receiving our representative. Now, when I talk about a representative to you, that probably brings to mind something more formal, like a, like a foreign dignitary or somebody who represents another country, an ambassador or something like that. And uh, that's part of it. I think that's part of it and it's well and good. But we also know that there's more to a representative than that. And uh, we can see that in a number of ways in our own life. But... Um, one clear one is with work. So a number of you probably travel for work. And you know that when you travel, whether it's in, in the city or in the state or even out of the state or out of the country, you know that when you go somewhere on work hours, you are representing your company. So if you wanted to drink alcohol in a board meeting, you know that's probably not the best idea simply because you're representing the company and you're working and there's other things going on, right? Change the situation, and if you're at home and your conscience is fine with that, then that's probably a normal activity for you. Uh, but because of the, the location and the, and the representation that you carry, you're going to change. That's a, that's a little bit more of a formal one, too. Uh, but I think there's, there's more of a family idea in the Bible, when we have uh, the idea of a representative. So another way that you clearly know this is your spouse. Uh, and this happens a lot at this time of year. So let's say you're invited to a party, and you're going to have one of two choices if you can make it. One choice is going to be, yes, we would love to go. Both of us, let's go, right? And the other would be, we don't really want to go, but we can't say no. 
So what are we going to do? Well, who draws the short straw? That's the person that's going to go and represent the whole family, right? Uh, whether it's a family function or a Christmas party for work, you know that if one spouse goes, both couples are represented, right? Uh, and so that's getting a little bit to a more relational aspect, but uh, I think there's one that's even bigger than that, and it's with kids. We know this with kids. Nobody represents us like our kids, for good and for bad. Uh, which one of you hasn't gone to the grocery store, if you have a son or a daughter, only to find out that their normal, normal uh, great behavior at home devolves into utter chaos at the grocery store? Things that they will do, you've never seen happen anywhere else in public. Uh, and, and because of that, you feel some sort of offense, um, an amount of responsibility, because you know that everybody in the store recognizing that's your child, right? And they're a reflection on you. They represent you to a degree. And so it's, it is logical in some sense to say, well, I'm angry at this. You're disobeying. You're not representing me well. You're doing bad things. And, uh, and then, you know, inevitably there's some sort of devolution in, into threatens of no more ice cream or candy for life. Or, uh, or if you go even further, then you could do something ridiculous and say if your, your child's not eating right and you want them to, then you say something. You're, if you don't eat this, you'll never eat again in your life. And obviously, that's, it's, maybe that's just me. I don't know. But uh, you make these sort of preposterous statements because there's something inside of you that says, this is not how it's supposed to be. You're not supposed to be like this. You're not supposed to defame my image. You're not supposed to misrepresent me. And, of course, there's a lot of that in parenting, and I'm sure I have a lot more to learn. But it's also something that, uh, on the flip side, can be very rewarding, right? And you see this when you have a new child. Inevitably, when they're born, you say, oh, that looks like who? Mom or dad? They're representing, they're reflecting mom or dad, and if they have a certain kind of nose or, or large forehead or something, you say, well, that's, that's mom, right? Or that's dad or something. Uh, you, would be, you would be encouraged by the way that they're representing you and you want to lay hold of that. And that's just as a baby. It only gets more and more into life. If they excel at sports, well, who's, who are you going to attribute that to you? Well, that's dad. My mom's not even good at sports, so it's got to be dad. Um, or mathematics, or whatever it is, you recognize admirable qualities, and then you say, well, that has to be me. <laughs> that has to be a reflection of me. And we do this naturally. And one of the church fathers, I think, was talking about this in, in our relationship with God when uh, he said, Augustine said, that all of us have a God-shaped hole in us. And that's a phrase that you've probably heard many times before, that we are made not just for ourselves, but to represent God. And his, his poetic ling language was that we were made to represent him, and we have this God-shaped hole in us. We will not be made complete, we will not be made full or whole until we recognize that. Um, and C.S. Lewis, I think, was kind of on the same track in The Weight of Glory when he said this. He said, this is, he said these things, these things that we love that are admirable, that satisfy us, that we want more of. The beauty, the memory of our own past are good images 
of what we really desire. But if they're if they are mistaken for the thing itself, they turn into dumb idols, breaking the hearts of their worshipers, for they are not the thing itself. They are only the scent of a flower we have not found, the echo of a tune we have not heard, news from a country that we have not yet visited. There is within us a, a, a resonization of our life with God that we, we see there's more to us, and not just more to us, but a a divine aspect that we exist for more in relation to God. So those are some ways that I think we can all recognize in our own lives that we are created to represent God. And to get into the the meat of it, how do we do that? Well, the first way that we see is by recognizing our purpose. And Pastor Case began last week with Genesis. We'll go back there again briefly. Um, but in Genesis 1.28, we see a little bit more of our purpose, the defined role of humanity, of mankind. Uh, and if you're one to kind of flip through the Bible and find everything, then uh, I encourage you for the next uh, little bit, just sit back and enjoy the ride. We're going to go through a number of different passages uh, and then land on some to examine a little bit more closely. But uh, I want to present to you a way that the Bible shows us our responsibility in representing God. And we see this in Genesis 1.28. God's command to the man is be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. This is one command in the Bible that people generally don't have a problem with at all. They don't have a problem procreating, right? That's one that people say, well, I guess if I have to do it and God says it's a good thing, then I'll do it. Everyone naturally does that. They want that. That is a part of the commandment from God that people, that people like to keep. And it's one that our church likes to keep if you haven't been in the kids' ministry yet because there are a slew of them. Um, and, and this is good. This is a part of our own cultural mandate from God, what he wants us to do. Be fruitful and multiply. So that's the command to Adam. But there's also a second part of it in the same verse, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. You see, God not only wants to fill the world with his representatives, but he also wants them to display what he's like. And one of the best ways that we can see this is in the Garden of Eden. Now, if you're reading Genesis 2, and we're not going to take the time to do it, but there's a lot of detail about what is going on there. And I'll just kind of, kind of sum it up for you. Um, in the Garden of Eden, you, you typically would think of what? Trees, fruit, foliage. You think of a hidden waterfall, perhaps. It's a place of paradise, right? That's how we normally think of Eden. But there's a lot more to Eden than that. Um, there, it's characterized by some, some key things that tell an old Jewish mind, someone who would have read this for the first time, what this place is like, that it's actually a temple. This is where God dwells. And everything that's wrapped up in being a temple is found in Eden. Not only is this where God dwells, but this is also a place where gold is found. There's gold in the hills, it says. There's four rivers coming down from it. It's a high mountaintop. In the Old Testament, the, one of the indictments against Israel was that they were always worshiping false gods in all these high places. If you wanted to go to a temple or even the, the poorest makeshift temple, to worship a God, it would be on a mountaintop, a high place. And this is where Eden is. Not only that, 
but uh, there are also cherubim surrounding this place. It is filled with angels around it, much like the temple, or even the tree of life that mimics the menorah in the temple, the Jewish temple. This is a place where God dwells, where he rests, and he is represented. What does that mean? It means this, that Adam is not simply the first man of mankind. He's not simply the man in creation before all men, but he is the one who's a priest to all of creation. He's the one that sits in the garden and demonstrates what God is like day and night to every single thing. Adam is the representative of God. One of the ways that you can see this in in old uh, literature from ancient Near Eastern cultures is they would say that the king is the living statue of God. If you wanted to see God, all you have to do is look at the king. That's it. He's the living statue. What he does is what God does. And so we see that God places man and woman in this garden, not simply to represent him, but to also communicate what he is like to the rest of creation. And this happens in a very small place called Eden. But there's more. In Genesis 2.15, we see that God not only wants it to stay there, but says that the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. That what's going on for the first man is he's supposed to nurture this environment, and then he's supposed to push the boundaries of it to everywhere in the world. And it's not that way at the, at the beginning of the world, at creation. What's happening is God's full image is only realized in a very small part of the earth. And so God says, I want, I'm going to put you in this garden to make sure that it happens all over the planet. Anywhere people go, they'll be able to see me for who I am and recognize me. They'll be able to notice my justice, my faithfulness, my righteousness, how I deal with people. And so Adam and Eve are God's image bearers at the beginning of creation. But as we all know, tragically, they fall, they sin, they disobey God, and the image, the representation is marred. It's not like it should be. But yet, God gives a promise. In Genesis 3.15, he says to the serpent that a boy will come and he will bruise your head. He will crush your head, but you will bruise his heel. God promises that there will be, from Adam and Eve, a boy to be born who will bring back this representation of God. And so I think it's important to ask, well, that's fine for Adam, but is it still that way? Is this still a desire of God after Adam? And what we're going to do is just take a real quick survey of some key figures in the Old Testament to show that I think it is. After Adam comes Noah. And Noah, you know, he's the only righteous man in the, in the earth, however many generations later. And all of creation is uh, really being suffered by wicked men. And God says, I'm going to destroy it. I'm going to wipe everyone out. I'm going to start again. And so he comes to Noah. He says, I'll save you. And you all know the story. The flood comes. They get in the boat. Waters go down. And they are rescued. And afterwards, in Genesis 9-1, we'll say this. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. It's not the first time we've heard this. God still has this agenda. He has this desire in his heart that he wants image bearers. He wants people to represent him in the earth. So 
after wiping everybody out but one family, he comes to them and says, now it's your turn. Be my representatives in the earth. Be fruitful and multiply. Another way we could say this is that that Noah is Adam 2.0. Where Adam failed, Noah was given another chance. And not only that, but we see after Noah, God comes to the one man, Abraham. And in Genesis 12, he says this, and I will make you a great nation. Abraham's worshiping a moon god at this time, and God comes to him, discloses himself, and then he says, I will make you a great nation. It's another way of saying multiply. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. God still has the same agenda with Abraham. He wants the entire world to know him as he is. So he needs representatives. After Abraham, another person that we could look at is Moses. You know the story with Moses, goes into Egypt, sets the Israelites free from captivity, comes out, brings the people to worship God. They sin by worshiping a golden calf instead of God. They worship a wrong image instead of the right image. And then, as, pain, as, as retribution for that, God says this in Exodus about the false worship that's going on. He says to Moses, that you shall be my treasured possession. Sorry, in Deuteronomy 9, he says, let me alone that I may destroy them, that's Israel, and blot out their name from under heaven, and I will make of you a nation mightier and greater than they. Even though he didn't do it, God still has, at the expense of everything, this desire to make much of himself in representatives. So he says, I'll wipe out Israel, and then I'll just do it with you, Moses. That's fine, I can do that. But Moses acts as a priest between the people and says, no, God, don't wipe them out. Forgive them. And he saves the nation. And not only that, there's other examples that we could look at, but the last one's going to be with Israel itself. You see, Israel itself as a nation in the Old Testament is God's son. In Exodus 4, the way that God talks about Israel is to say, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, let my son go that he may come serve me. This is God's instruction to Moses to tell to Pharaoh. Israel's my son. He's my representative. But not only that, in Deuteronomy 28, verse 4, God will start by saying this, Blessed shall be the fruit of your womb and the fruit of your ground and the fruit of your cattle and the increase of your herds and the young of your flock. Blessed shall be your basket and your kneading bowl. That's the way of saying that everything that they do will be blessed. They will, like Adam, multiply. But, of course, Israel sins, and they lose God's covenant. They break God's covenant. But is this still something that God wants to be done? Well, yes, it's still something God wants to be done. But not only that, he will do it. There's a, a refrain through the Old Testament and it goes like this. It's Habakkuk 2.14. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the water covers the sea. That's another way of saying all of creation will know who I am. And not just know like an acquaintance like, oh, I know about that guy, but will intimately know what God is like, who he is. So God will do it. 
or Isaiah 11:9, that they shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. God will see the world, you and I, everybody, know who he is. And he's passionate about it. So the question that we have to ask after this, I think, is, well, has it happened? If this is God's desire, if this is what he's been about from the beginning, and then bringing us through the ages, has it happened? And I hate to break it to you if you haven't figured this out, but no, that's not it. Uh, That we all do not represent God as he deserves. And there are a number of ways that we could look at this. Um, Our our own image is the way that we can see this. So not only by recognizing our purpose, but realizing our image, this is how we can represent God. We have to know what we look like corporately as mankind. So we can just take the examples that, that uh, we've looked at. For Adam, these are the most upstanding men of history, okay? The most moral figures that we have. For Adam, he was a coward, and he blamed his wife for his failure to keep God's command. Sounds like a righteous guy, doesn't it? Or Noah. Noah passed out naked after getting drunk, right after God saved him. Or what about Abraham, the father of many nations, the righteous man, the one that two world religions go back to as their father? He was a liar, a chronic liar. He prostituted his wife twice, The first time, you're like, well, maybe it's an accident. The second time, come on, you know what you're doing. And not only that, but he committed adultery with his wife's best friend, her helper, to have another son because he couldn't wait on God. Or Moses, Moses was a murderer from the beginning. And he got so angry that he disobeyed God and hit a rock, which doesn't make much sense. But this is how it is. The broken representation of God leads to all these things. And it's not just them. It's also Israel. Israel, there's, even, there's almost too much to talk about with Israel. Uh, they're characterized as being adulterers most of the time, covenant breakers, idol worshipers, baby killers. Hear this in Isaiah 1 about how God feels about his son, the one who's supposed to represent him. And think about it if you have a son or a daughter. Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. Children have I reared and brought up, but they've rebelled against me. This doesn't make any sense. Not only that, but they they broke the covenant like Adam. And this is what Hosea says in Hosea 6. But like Adam, they transgressed the covenant. There they dealt faithlessly with me. God says, it doesn't matter, all of them. All of them have broken my image. All of them misrepresent me. And it got so bad, it's hard for us to understand, I think, what all this means. But here's one. I'll just give you one example. It got so bad for Israel that they voluntarily offered up their own children as sacrifices. A lot. A whole lot. And this is something other nations did. In uh, Jeremiah, we read this. They built the high places of Baal in the valley of son of Hinnom to offer up their sons and daughters to Molech, though I did not command them, nor did it enter into my mind that they should do this abomination to cause Judah to sin. Uh, this, need a little bit of commentary on this to understand it, but Molech is 
characterized throughout the Old Testament as the detestable God, and here's why. I, I um, was studying this week and uh, learned more than I knew, so I won't even share much with you because it's so graphic, but uh, the god Molech, here's what it looked like. The body of a man, the head of an ox. So already the representation's messed up. The head of an ox, and, and this would work out a number of ways, but here's one of the ways the child's sacrifice would work out. So you say you want rain for your crops, or you want good produce, or you want income, or safety from your enemies, whatever it is. Uh, you, would, you would pray to a god, and to get that to happen, you give him something in return. And what you give Molech is your children. And half the time, an idol of Molech would be set up on a high place, a mountain where you go to meet with him. And he has his arms outstretched like this. And the arms are at an incline. And the back of the torso has a hole in it. And you put the baby on the arms to offer it to Molech so it runs down the arms, out the back, and down the mountain. And there's a lot more that's worse that goes along with God Molech. This is how the image of God, this is how God has been, re- has been misrepresented. It's easy to think about, oh, God's misrepresented, that's fine, that's his problem, I got my own stuff. No, that attitude is a part of the problem. Israel, the only people who knew God in the whole earth, are doing this to image bearers. And I think it's easy to look at them and say, well, that's Israel. That's, you know, that happened way back then, doesn't happen today, or I'm not involved in anything that bad. But then if we turn a keen eye to our culture, we can see some things that are, that are just as bad. Since 1970 to 2016, over 46 million documented abortions have been committed. 46 million image bearers. And we would think that Molech is something for the time of the past. If not that, then pornography is a tremendous problem in our culture and in our world. And you've probably heard this before, but the, uh, the annual revenue of pornography is $97 billion. That's enough to feed 4.8 billion people. We have people starving all over the place. Not only that, but the money for pornography that it brings in is more than Major League Baseball, football, and the NBA combined. The U.S. only, only the U.S., puts out 10 to 12 billion in pornography a year. And so many of us have a part in that. It's not a separate issue. This is an issue of misrepresenting God. And there's plenty more to mention We could talk about racism, classism, human trafficking. None of us correctly represents God as he deserves. As Romans says, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Nobody represents him as he deserves. And if you think still, well, I don't do that bad stuff, hear James. With our tongue, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. God's offended at this. The image is being defamed. But not only that, if you say, well, I, I, I really, I'm, 
I'm better than that, or you know what, I know Jesus and he covers my sin. Hear Jesus' words to the church in Laodicea in Revelation. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. It's not just the bad things that we consider that misrepresent God. It's often the good things. It's the things that we think, oh, I don't need God. That is a self-promoting, a self-autonomous mindset that is contrary to the very reason you're created. We sin when we are self-reliant and self-sustaining. This is the problem with us. The image of God is not as it should be in us. To represent God correctly, we need not only to recognize our God-given purpose, but we also need to realize our own image, that our own image is seriously twisted from what it's supposed to be. The problem's not only out there. The problem's in here. And the good news is that God didn't leave us to this. Isaiah 59 says it this way about some of those things that were going on, that the Lord saw it. And that may be terrifying if you understand what's happening, but it's a good thing. The Lord saw it, and it displeased him that there was no justice. He saw that there was no man, no image bearer, no representative, and wondered that there was no one to intercede. Then his own arm brought him salvation, and his righteousness upheld him. To correctly represent God, we need not only to see, recognize that we are created for it, it's our purpose, and not only realize our own image, that we are broken and fallen, but also that we have to receive a representative. See, Hebrews would say it this way, that Jesus is the image of God, that he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. And you would ask, well, how can Jesus do this? If all of humanity has failed, if the most righteous men in history weren't able to keep this representation of God, how is Jesus able to do it? He's fully human. And then we see in Isaiah that it's not because he's human. It's because he's God. Fully God. Isaiah would say it this way, that for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be on his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. He is Mighty God. Do you have a hard time believing this? If so, you're not alone. This was one of the things that the disciples had the hardest time believing about Jesus. In John 20, Thomas the doubter, it took him seeing the resurrected Christ, not only hearing it from the other apostles, but he would, he, he would say this when he sees him. What does he say? My Lord and my God. That he sees that Jesus is fully God. One of the other ways that we can see this happen is in Ezekiel 37. God says, I will make a covenant of peace with them. Looking forward to a, a new covenant, a new time, a new promise. It shall be an everlasting covenant with them. And they, and I will set them in their land and multiply them. Same language, multiplying. And will set my sanctuary in their midst, Eden. Same thing. And not only that, but it will happen forevermore. My dwelling place shall be with them, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. Then the nations will know that I am the Lord who sanctifies Israel, and my sanctuary will be in their midst. When Jesus comes, what he does is he pushes Eden 
all over the world. Everyone can know what God is like. And this is why missions is such a tremendous thing. This is why church planting is such a tremendous thing. It's because the image of God is unknown in some places of the world. It's unknown in our community. There are people that don't know who God is, even if they have an idea of what he is. So they meet you and they see you and you become to them, if you know Jesus, the representation of God, the way that you parent your kids, the way that you are committed and involved in the church, the way that you stand up for social injustice, the way that you make it a priority to pursue God in his word and become more conformed to the image of Christ. They see those things and they say, that's what God's like. And if they condemn it, then they condemn it on the basis of God and not of a misrepresentation. There's one more place to look at here, and it's Romans 5. Paul will talk about all of this in one place in Romans 5, and he'll say this, that therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, that's Adam, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned, for sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there's no law, yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. What Paul says is he looks back through his doctorates upon doctorates of Jewish history and scripture, and he sees at the beginning, before Adam ever was, the person that Adam was modeled after. He saw the proof in the scriptures that say Adam wasn't the first man. He was the first man created, but he was modeled, he was crafted after another man. He was crafted after Jesus. So he'll say, but the free gift, the free gift is not like the trespass. For if one, if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift of grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abound to many. Adam's sin affected everybody. Jesus' righteousness can affect everyone, everyone who believes in him. Let me call your mind back to one last thing. Do you remember what happened in the garden with Adam? Sinning, breaking God's covenant, misrepresenting him. That's not the only garden that we see in Scripture. You see, at the end, right before Jesus is crucified, as he is brought out to be betrayed by one of his best friends, he goes to a garden. And he prays so hard, he bleeds. He sweats blood because he, his soul is in so much anguish, so much turmoil. He feels the temptation to misrepresent God. All they have to do is say, I'm not going to do this. It's not worth it for these people. All of them. They were made to represent me. They don't represent me. But he doesn't. He passes the test. In the garden, what we see is the second Adam. Come to pass the test that you and I fail all the time. That all of the fathers, the church fathers fail. That all of the moral upright men of history and everyone else fails. Jesus in the garden stands in our place as God and says, I'll pay for their sin. I'll go to the cross. I'll suffer and die, and I'll rise again. 
And as he does that, Jesus becomes for us a place that we can become hidden in God. The wrath of God doesn't come against us to destroy us, but instead it destroyed him. And we receive his image. So what what do you need to do to receive him? You need to believe that Jesus is the Christ. He's the son of God. He came to die for your sins and your failures and make you right with God, to restore you to God. Jesus is our savior by virtue of his godness, his divinity. And he's the only one that correctly represents God. What does this mean for Advent? It means this, that we can celebrate and remember the coming of our God to be with us. This is it, God with us, divinity. No answer has there been in all of human history except for this. The only way to draw near to God is through Christ. And this should be a great encouragement for you because in the midst of your brokenness, in the midst of your sin, like Paul says in Romans, at just the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Jesus came as both our human representative and our divine savior. Because Jesus is God, we have hope that we too can represent God and live with our purpose. So if, if you've not done that, if you not have believed in Christ as God's image for you, that he makes you right with God by dying on the cross, then I encourage you, hear, see, believe. This is God's image to us in Christ, willing to lay down his life, fully just, fully merciful. And we can become just like him through the son. Let's pray. Father, thank you for sending your son that we may become what you have always wanted. Right? Image bearers of you. People who in their lives demonstrate what you're like. Not in a formal aspect only, but in a family aspect that when other people see us that believe in Jesus, what they're seeing is Jesus. What they're seeing is God the creator. Father, I ask that you would help drive this truth down into our hearts and understand what it means to live for you every day and not for ourselves. That as we look to Jesus, we can see the one who suffered for us to make us right with God. We ask this in your name. Amen.